Our first reading for this morning is taken from the Gospel according to John. John chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. John chapter 14, beginning at the 15th verse. Jesus was speaking to his disciples when he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, because he abides in you and he will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I am coming to you. In a little while the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. On that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who keep my commandments and keep pardon me, they who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me, and those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Amen. And we turn now to the book of Psalms, Psalm 66, verses 8 to 20. Once more, let us listen for God's word, as it is given in Psalm 66, beginning at the 8th verse. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept us among the living, and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid burdens on our backs. You let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a spacious place. I will come into the house of burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows. Those that my lips utter and my mouth promises when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fatlings with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried aloud to him, and he was extolled with my tongue. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has given heed to the words of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. Amen. We continue in our series of readings from the first letter of Peter to the church. First Peter chapter 3 is our reading this morning, verses 13 to 22. Listen for God's word in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at the 22nd verse, pardon me, the 13th verse. Now who will harm you if you are eager to do what is good? But even if you do suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be intimidated 
But in your in your heart, sanctify Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. Keep your conscience clear, so that when you are maligned, those who abuse you for your good conduct in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if suffering should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved by water. And baptism, which this prefigures, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. And our reading from the book of Acts and this text for this morning's uh, sermon, Acts chapter 17, verses 22 to 31. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely righteous you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, to an unknown God. That which you, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines that are made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath, and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by, the raise, by raising him from the dead. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
friends in Christ. What I say to you this morning is proclaimed in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, The God That We Do Not Know. Earlier this week, while I was watching the news one evening, I saw an interview with the Greek Prime Minister. And he spoke of how Greece had combated the COVID-19 pandemic and of the devastating effect that the lack of global travel would have on Greek's economy with its heavy reliance on the tourism industry. And for a fleeting moment, I had the thought that maybe this year would be a good year to visit Greece with cheap flights and fewer crowds to contend with one might actually to be able to be able to enjoy the historic locations of the birthplace of modern society we are still drawn to greece years after its prominence as a cultural center has waned we are still drawn by the architecture and the ghosts of the great philosophers who walked the city streets of athens centuries ago So we can understand, then, why the Acts of the Apostles this morning depicts for us the story of Paul in that great cultural city. Paul is at the heart of all all thought and understanding. He is in the home of reason. And he has been invited to uh, to address the city councillors and leaders and to apparently present them with the tenants of the Christian faith. Now, whether this was a cordial visit or not, we do not know for sure. While Luke gives us no hint that there was any animosity, we are aware that this was indeed the very body in the very place that Socrates had been summoned some 500 years earlier. And in this place, Socrates had been sentenced to death for introducing new gods. We are also aware that Athens was a cultural and intellectual crossroads and that its elite enjoyed exploring and debating new ideas. So perhaps it was that Paul was just the embodiment of the newest philosophy to journey through town, and so he was invited to make his case. Paul begins his address by heaping praise upon his audience noting that they are surely very religious because he has seen all of their shrines and temples to their various gods. And indeed, Paul notes, he even saw a shrine dedicated to an unknown god. Now such shrines to unknown gods were not unfamiliar in the pantheistic societies of that time because, according to their understanding, There were numerous gods, and some gods were more powerful and capricious. It was prudent to have a place of worship to any god that you may have missed, lest God take his vengeance out upon you. But Paul uses this shrine to the unknown god as the common ground between himself and the Athenians, as a means through which he could introduce the god of the Hebrews to them. Paul draws on the writing of the Greek poets Epimedides and Eretus to bolster the argument for the God of the Hebrews, the God, the Creator. Many of the Greek poets had articulated that God lives in us, 
And so Paul builds on that, saying, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we, too, are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deities like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of mortals. For indeed, it is God who forms us, not we who form God. Time and again, throughout the centuries, Christian missionaries and apologists have drawn upon the yearning and the longing of people to show that it is indeed God the Lord that others have been searching for. It is God the Lord who alone can address our needs, our longings, and our fears. All societies erect philosophies and structures to address the uncertainty and the listlessness of life and to give a greater give a greater story in which people can have hope. And yet, each of these lacks one thing, the grace of God. The grace of God that allows us to acknowledge that we are not in control of things, and yet there is one who is. And that one looks with compassion upon us and is motivated by that love to work for our good. It is with this knowledge, and this knowledge alone, that we are able to face the challenges of life and to confront that confront us each day. Over the past several weeks, I have to say that I have become all too aware of the uncertainty of life and of ministry. Nothing that I learned in Knox College prepared me for the ministry in which I am currently engaged. Nothing in over 30 years of ministry has given me a framework to guide a congregation through its present circumstances. Not one of those books that I showed the young people in my bookcase downstairs has, the ability, has spoken of this circumstance where we find ourselves. And of course, we are not alone in that. All congregations around the world are struggling with this new reality. All businesses and institutions are going through exactly the same thing. As people of faith, however, we know this one thing, that we are the benefactors of God's grace. Even though we are separated through self-isolation, we know God is with us. We know that after death comes resurrection. And so... We can hope. Reading this text this week, there was one line that stood out for me above all others. It was this. The God who made the world and everything is it, in it, he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. Our Christian faith has felt different and unfamiliar to us in these times when we have been unable to gather together. And yet we know that Paul's words to the Greek council are true. Our God does not live in buildings made by human hands. As worshipful and reverent as our buildings might be, they are not what we worship. We worship the God who draws us each week 
into these places. We worship the God who sends us out from these places and into ministry in the world. I suspect this will be a time of great change in the church, as all congregations and all Christians are forced to struggle with the question, what does it mean to be followers of Jesus? And especially, what does it mean when we cannot gather together? And what some will learn is that our God is not limited by our buildings, but lives and moves in the streets, the streets of Nazareth and Jerusalem of biblical times, in the streets of Athens as Paul preaches the gospel, in the streets of Cornwall, or wherever you may be today, as we proclaim the love of God in word and deed. Or I hope that is true. This week I encountered an article by Bishop Robert Snaith of the United Methodist Church in Texas, in which he speaks of shadow ministries, the ministries of the church that are formed and shaped by the buildings of the congregations. But this current crisis has forced us out of our buildings and caused us to leave behind much. The question now for the church is, what shall we do? What new mission is God calling us to? For we know that God does not waste an opportunity. Exodus and exile have been for God's people opportunities to look forward to the future with eager hearts and to recommit themselves to service. So too will this time be for us. An opportunity to recover once more the love of God that shapes and forms us and all that we do. Just as the Athenians built shrines to an unknown God, we have been called to find new ways to worship and serve a God who does not quite look like the God of the past, even just two months ago. And yet we know he will be a God who will continue to be faithful to us, to walk with us and guide us. So let us meet this challenge before us with renewed faith, renewed confidence, and renewed joy, knowing that wherever we are and whatever we do, we are the children of God, and in him we do indeed live and move and have our being. Thanks be to God. Amen.